You still with us, Carl? No, because are, are we recording? I don't. I'm not seeing a, a red flashing light or a, a, a imminent, yeah, imminent, imminent explosion. <laughs> I see it on my right. screen. It says recording. Uh, welcome to Agile World. And <laughs> I tell you what, it's the uh, it's, it's the Edinburgh countryside. There's uh, there's someone somewhere sitting on a pipe holding up all of the digital. Um, Hilarious. I'm going to stop my camera for a second because uh, obviously looking at me is not that important and the conversation is what we're here for, uh, if I can actually stop it. Okay, so um, as I said earlier, welcome to Agile World. Sabrina winding me up as normal. And Anthony, how are you doing? It's been a while. It has. I'm well, thank you. Uh, did you get any responses to me putting you in my book? <laughs> <laughs> Not so much yet, but I'm sure that's just because it just got started. Oh yeah, yeah. There, there'll be a, there'll be a, a large flurry of of engagements coming forward Confidence soon. Confidence sure. coming. Yes. <laughs> oh, um, what so, page was it on? Uh, it's it's the uh, the the man who owns the solution to agile metrics. Yes, that was it. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, after the festival, how, how's it been going for you? What, what, what have you been up to? Well, life at IBM continues to be challenging and an opportunistic. So I just have a lot of opportunities to learn and share. Right now, I shifted from the agile digital sales work I've been focused on for roughly 18 months to agile marketing space, where I'm really building out what my bosses tasked me with is the scaling of uh, our technologies and insights so that we're able to have our disciplines, which would be disciplines would be the self uh, service type, not coaching work, but the things we could do to help empower um, on demand, et cetera. And then how do we have that scaling so that the metrics and the things that I created over in Agile Digital Sales, we could apply to the 3,500 marketers you know, at IBM. So that's part of the process that I'm uh, working on right now. And um how did they respond to what you've done already? Because I thought it was marvelous, but it obviously, you know, you had built it all yourself using whatever was to hand. Uh, are, they, <laughs> well, are they giving you some developers to make it into something? Yeah, what you're talking about is uh, you know the retrospective radar that I created using first just Mural um, as a Mural.co, just a, a collaborative space to capture the retrospectives and then action on them through the circles of control, influence, and concern. Um, and then the overlaid with Patku is uh, starfish for retrospectives of start doing, stop doing, keep doing more of and less of. And it's it's the export of that that we built um, first in Excel, just an MVP, to say, how do we track and understand the feedback that's coming from all these different teams and understand the patterns and ideas using the Watson natural language processor, motion, sentiment, frequency, et cetera, and then roll that up to management view to say, how do we understand patterns of feedback over time and how do we act on those so that feedback leads to change? And we're at a place of that got built to a point in digital sales and now with marketing, we will be building more of it out, but there's a bunch of activities we're working on. So that's not the top priority at the moment, but it will be. So right now it's still in that state that you last saw when I presented at the uh, festival, but there will be work on that where I think we'll end up moving it off of Excel into another platform that's easier to have um, people access and manipulate. But that's just coming. It's just a matter of time. And uh, when will when will the rest of the world get access? Because we all want it. Well, thanks. Um, <laughs> that's really awesome. Well, I created a Creative Commons license uh, for the retrospective radar because I wanted to give away the, the thought leadership around it. I want people to think about rather than how did you do this sprint or how did you do in your iteration or how's the flow going if you're Kanban, but it's really the idea of how do we take the insights, not just from that team, but scale it across many teams so that the, the way we solve a problem, if not the problem itself, doesn't have to be reinvented you know, across an organization. Um, so the mural piece of that actually should be available either very, very soon or already is, and I'm not aware, but the, the folks at Mural asked me to create a generic template for that so that they could put it in the Mural library, and then that would be published and people could use that. But the backend data piece, uh, I don't know what the what that would look like or when we would get that out the door, honestly. Okay. Well, I mean, it's it's uh, we're willing to wait. 
you know, it's, you, know you wait for good things. Um, I mean, I, I'm, for, not, I'm not. <laughs> well, I mean, it's, what it's... you've created <laughs> is something that people have wanted, and why have we not even thought about it before? Speed it up. Thanks. 20 years into Agile and, and, and Anthony comes up with an idea that everybody wants all of a sudden. I, I kind of doubt that. <laughs> I'm to assume that it's just a good idea that maybe others can, can even riff on. Well, well uh, yes and no. I think there's, there's some, there's some pieces there and how it gets put together um, and the logical forms that you've used to uh, make it have meaning that actually yeah. a lot of people would miss the point if they were not agilists. So, you know, tool makers wouldn't, wouldn't get it. They wouldn't get anywhere near what you've done. So, I mean, I suppose the interesting question is, is how did you get into agile in the first place? Cause you know, no one, no one goes to their college uh, um, professor and says, let me, let me know about something that I can get into. I've heard of agile. Let me do that. So how did you get into yeah. agile? I would love to be that guy in the future here <laughs> 10, 20 years from now who is having people come up at the college where I'm teaching. I would love to do that. Um, but you're right. I, like most people, uh, stumbled into it. It was an accident waiting to happen, I suppose. I, I came from the sales and then marketing background, and I was really getting into the content side of things. Content marketing automation was on the rise, just very, very early adopter in that space. And I happened to get a job uh, working um, at a a startup that had been around for like two, three years. And they, they made a CRM type database for nonprofits. And so I was brought on to lead the communications. And so on day one, I'm giving a tour around this office and in the developer space, there's like this really cool space. The lights are off. It's like, it's got lamps around the tables glow. It was really just a cool vibe. But what caught my attention was this 60 foot long, 10 foot tall, white magnetic whiteboard. And it had all these these note cards, index cards with little magnetic pawn pieces holding them to the wall. And they were grouped. And I was like, what is that? And they're like, oh, that's our development. And, and I had no idea. So because uh, in my job, I had to work and say, how do we promote our brand um, products and offerings out to as a marketing push? But it also had the community side. So uh, my cohort, Curtis Harris, um, was a guy who it prompted me to say, hey, so that we coordinate what we're telling existing users and talking about the features for new users, it would be helpful to go to some of these standups they have to understand where the product's going and what they're facing so that we have an idea of what we should or shouldn't promote and when. And sure. So I go to a couple of these and I was just blown away by the expediency by which they moved, the trust that they demonstrated, the candor with what they shared. It was all just a remarkable experience to me. And I remember going back to my boss and saying, we don't work anything like that in marketing. Like our world feels like um, everything's on fire and everything's an emergency and we've just got to move as fast as we can and hope we get it right. And Hope's a great thing, but it's not a great strategy. And they seem to have a strategy for their work. They're, the way they prioritize and flow on their work was far better than what we had. So I said, I want to learn that. And what I wanted to do was bring it into comms and, and marketing to say, how do we do it? And so we, of course, I go sit down with Lance Stacy, who now is at BigAgile.com. Um, and I, I remember meeting with him as he was the product uh, uh, scrum master. And I said, how does this work? And he teaches me basics of scrum. So I go, great, let's put that in marketing. And it was like crash and burn because what I didn't understand was their world other than break fix was very head down, not interrupted work, just crank out the code, solve the problems, work through those. But that wasn't our world. Our world was very responsive to sales and to leads coming in and to business partners and alliances. So we we couldn't have that level of, of estimation and planning and all those things that they were doing so well. It really didn't work for us. But that's when I started to experiment um, and learn. I mean, I have a picture of it still that shows the cork board we use with the cards and yarn to make swim lanes. Like <laughs> we tried, but what we had to come back with was the framework isn't the point. And I have since learned, you know, that's doing agile and not being agile. So it was a total happenstance thing. I was right place, right time. And I just started asking questions because my favorite questions are why and why not? So I wanted to figure out how do you apply the principles in marketing? And that was 2009. So it was quite a while ago. 
I love how just by you walking into a room and seeing the post-it notes on the wall and then actually attending a daily stand-up actually gave you that passion of I'm intrigued, I want to know. So then implementing it and not just implementing Scrum that you were originally told, but implementing something brand new that works with marketing. And, and I love how you've got that passion but how you were actually attracted to it kind of really, I'm guessing you're saying it started off by just seeing that whiteboard and those post-it notes. That's kind of what kind of started it off for you. Sabrina, that's so true. And it's one of the things I still, whether it's electronic or physical, the visualization of work and workflow cannot be um, overstated. Like the power of that is remarkable. And uh, that's a perfect example of it. But now, you know, when I've had, uh, you know, pre-pandemic, I would be in situations where I would have stakeholders or like in marketing, sales would come to the room and go, we need this. Of course, when do they need it right now? And it's super important. And we've got this client deal waiting and everything was an emergency until we were able to have um, some sort of, you know, flow system, which we used, if I were to give it a term, it would be lean scrum bond, if I were to probably frame it for you. But what we still had was an organized flow of work. And there was a set of backlog, there was a set of epics that we basically just described using some of that scrum language. And people could come in and at first, they didn't know what this wall of work was. And they would just say, I need. And the first thing I do is I'd walk them over to the wall of work and say, okay, so you know those three other things we're doing for you where we're also doing this and this and this. So which of the things for you is less important than that? So I know what we need to deprioritize before we can even think about doing that. And it was an, I wasn't asking them to actually prioritize it. What I was asking was for them to understand, do you see that we're not just sitting here waiting for you to bring us work? We're very orchestrated, we're organized, and we respond well, but there's always a cost. It's not free. And what I wanted them to do was start to have a value and appreciation for the effort it took to actually deliver great outcomes, not just give them an output. And that was the first thing was client centricity and, and outcome oriented mindset meant we visualized that truth. And then we validated our hypothesis by testing, measuring and repeating, and then come back and say, now, was that worth it? In fact, a very quick story I'll tell that really just sums how that worked out. This was a company uh, at the time that was running um, in two countries. So I ran the Americas and my counterpart ran Europe. And what we did is we coordinated through online tools, basically, and we also did the physical board. So I, du I duplicated the effort because we had to share with someone who wasn't going to be in the office, but it was also still powerful to have a visual. So it was a little more effort, but the power was so great. The effort was really not that much. So what we ended up doing was we would track, and this was all done in the spreadsheet, but we just tracked the outcomes of all of those projects and those activities that we did and we looked for an efficacy rating so we were looking for a score at the end to go how valuable was that because i think that marketing should be a profit center and that's not how most of marketing is run most of marketing is seen as an expense and i think we should be yeah. generating revenue and i think it should be attributed so at any rate i i built this out and i started showing the amount of executive insertions which i was told on day one this is great that you want to do this because it was kind of a shambles when i got there and um, and I was told, yeah, but there's a lot of stuff that's last minute. And I go, no problem. I have no problem saying yes to test the theory of if your last minute idea is good or not, because I'm going to measure it. And so what ended up happening was six months in, and I told my team who kept like just balking at the idea of we always say yes, and it's never a great idea. And I'm like, got it. We need data. Mm -hmm. So for six months, we did this. And I built a three slide PowerPoint. And I walked in, and I set this meeting up with the exec. So this is Europe plus North America. And I said, I have three slides and there's three ground rules. Number one, what I'm about to show you is not about any one person. It's about the thing. So this is not personal. There are names attached, but that's just for context. So this is not saying anybody's good or bad. Number two, this is data. This is not Anthony's opinion. It's not my team's opinion. And number three, we're going to leave here by choosing how we're going to change. Those are the three things. Are we ready? Let's begin. And the first slide I showed was an aggregate view that said, here's all the things we delivered. And what we had is our score, the, the, the rep yield revenue kind of ratios, right? To show the value of that effort for all that we had done for the last six months. And then I broke it out and I said, now here's the work that we planned on doing, that we worked on, that we put the effort into to really do well. And sometimes that's not really fast, but we delivered it. And here's the results of those. And then the third slide was, and here's all those executive insertions and here's the value rating. And it was clear, like the, the last minute stuff was 
far and away far less effective than everything we did. Not to say that you can't pivot quickly, but when you have the intentionality to focus on creating great outcomes, you're more focused on the quality than in the speed of doing something quick because someone needs to do it. And generally your quality goes down when you do that. And that's what we found. Just these great ideas. And then what ended up happening was I think it was 80, it was like 86% of them were my boss. Where <laughs> he and he and he was the guy, and I knew this, but I just said, and so Brent, here you go. He, that's your name. You were the you were the biggest contributor to this and your stuff, all these great ideas you have, they might be great, but we'll never know the truth if they could be because we don't have enough time to actually execute them well to meet the deadlines. So they might be great ideas or they might not, but we'll never know. So what we need you to do is decide if you really have to have something now that you understand what you're not getting that is producing higher value statistically that you're saying no to. There is a cost and it's not free. And so what this did was there was this, I mean, you couldn't argue the data, but the, the feedback was pretty amazing. That's amazing. We don't want to do that. Great. I said, okay, so when you come back and ask for, I'm going to remind you of this, I'm going to post it in the room and we're going to talk about the cost of not doing something in order to do what you want to do last minute. Not saying no, I'm just letting you know, you now are accountable for the outcomes with us because we've proven how we work can be far better results if you give us the time to do it. And that's just to me, visualization, visualization, you know, put it in front of them, talk about it frequently, communicate it, and then be very realistic in your expectations and you should get better outcomes, right? That just should be a byproduct almost, but it has to be the point. That's brilliant because that's you, you've basically just explained economic ordering. Um, but you've, yes. you've but you've done it by showing a tangible, and this is this is where I find a lot of consultancy does it completely wrong. They bring in a bunch of rules and say people have to comply to these rules. They don't do a benefits model or even show an a, an outcome um, themselves. Yet they expect other people to adopt these frameworks and behaviours without having shown how they add value. That's uh, just compliance. You, yeah, right. it's 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 a it's a centralized view of how to adopt agile, but actually agile is at team level. You deliver at team level, you give value at team level, and then you expand beyond your team as you start to influence and help other people deliver also. And and that's kind of what you've exposed there as what you've done. But you know, I mean that that's that's uh, whether whether um, the value hits. Is, is when you actually show people, we've achieved this, we did it this way, this is what you can have. Um, and I, unfortunately, I spend a lot of time working in organizations, huge organizations that have gone the other way, which is, says, you must do this. And everyone's going, why? What does it do for me? I mean, it looks like another overhead. Didn't we do this transformation two years ago or three years ago? Haven't we done it five times now? We still don't get any value. <laughs> and it's, I think you've you've brought forward a philosophy of change, not just an activity of change. You know, the mindset is, you know, how can I possibly tell my boss to stop giving me short-term ideas that deliver no value? unless I can prove it. Well, that's the key that's is measurement, right? Yeah. Yeah. Say again, well, you, Serena. You almost, I was just going to say, you you went, uh, your passion, you went into the room, you created that openized environment, you showed clearly using data what the behavior currently is happening now, and you came out with changing their behavior in one meeting, which is a rarity. We've all been in these situations where well, we're Well, one to get meeting away. backed up with six months of struggling with the team culture of, gosh, nothing's changing. Why do we keep doing the things that aren't working? Because we're building a story, right? I, we swim in data at IBM. I don't need more data. I need sense from the data. I need insight from the data. So you have to take the time to think through what story am I telling? What's the narrative here? And then how do I make that an objective story, not a subjective one? It can't be a fairy tale. It's got to be based in reality. So what are the metrics that we have that understand that? Um, so you're right. That's But so yes, in one meeting that did happen after so, six months, right? It, so, was, it wasn't that I just went into a meeting. It's that you there was a lot that it took to get to that place to have one meeting yield a significant change. How, how did you make that leap from the cardboard cutout agile 
to um, thinking about the problem. I mean, that that's not in agile, really. It's that's no. that's something in you and well, your I mean, behaviors. I don't know. I'm. Um, this will get a little bit squirrely for some people. I I am uh, Myers Briggs ENTJ. Strengths finders, uh, top five strengths are strategic ideation, activator, relator, and command. And my top five, my Enneagram is uh, I'm a type one wing two. So if you look at that kind of base infrastructure of the way I am in the world, the way I approach the world and the way people experience me in the world, you know, Myers-Briggs, Strengths Finders, Enneagram, then I just have a lot of self-awareness that I've had to learn because I didn't always have that. I've always had a passion to understand why, but I didn't have the tools to know how do I do that? My wife, Babs, has been from remarkable at helping me to have not only the intention to do something, but to realize that the intention not to do something is just as strong and it's just as powerful. So, for example, I would do something. I'm like, babe, I didn't mean to upset you. She's like, right. You didn't mean not to. Right. So there was this intentional focus of what you do want to do. And then you have to take a pause, which I'm not good at, and say, so what's the opposite of that? And what do I need to be aware of? Kind of a pre-mortem for for my scenarios. Well, that, that's that's a lot like red team thinking in the tenth man, isn't it? That you 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 may get nine people who agree with you, but one person has to come out and say no, that's wrong because of this, this, and this, and it, it allows you to start to rationalise uh, personal bias because we assume that we are doing the right thing because it's us and we we mean well by it, but actually we may not have all the right facts. And so yeah. we, we push forward without proper context. Uh, and that's so, psychological safety, right? Where yeah. Amy Edmondson, who's a Harvard professor, um, and she authored the book, The Fearless Organization, which I highly recommend, says psychological safety is the belief that one will not be punished or humiliated for speaking up with ideas, questions, concerns, or mistakes, right? So that, and then we talk about these as quote unquote soft skills, which I'm not a fan of. No, those are just skills. That's 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 how you interact with people. That's how you get better internally. That's how self-reflection happens is you have to have that awareness, which is why I say the number one skill I look for in, in, when hiring anybody is empathy, um, because if you can't be empathetic with yourself for the things you don't understand, there's no way you can be empathetic with someone else. So I look to help them to understand what kind of self-awareness and I'm a case study in how not to do it. Just go back to my past. I mean, part of what makes me an expert is I know exactly what not to do because I did it wrong. Um, but yeah, right. I, it's not an agile thing. It's the Anthony's way of seeing the world. It's I can't not be this way. Agile was just for me because I stumbled into it and I didn't get all that. No one came to me and said, let me tell you about agile and how you should. I didn't have that experience. So what I had was experience where agility was a behavior that I learned and a, and a mindset that I encountered, not a doctrine that I was preached. And so it wasn't a methodology that was forced to me. I wanted to know how to get better. And it just so happened that the way I think and the way Agile works are very much in line. So, you know, I talk about psychological safety quite a bit. And I think that there's four pillars of trust, speaking up, collaboration, experimentation, and reflection. Well, don't those sound a lot like the things we do <laughs> on a regular basis in Agile? Like there's the yeah. parallels are so great that for me, when I found Agile, it was like coming home. It was like, I had no idea someone codified all the stuff in my head that I've always been told that doesn't work. And I'm like, why not? Yeah. Um, I, so I, I look at Agile and I look at, I, I see a short form of the design process. Mm. Now, for me, I look at it and, and people are saying, you know, uh, I, I mentioned the design process to someone uh, a few months ago and they said, oh, so-and-so invented that. I said, no. This is how humans evolved. <laughs> this is how humans understood the problem, uh, uh, experimented, uh, evaluated, and then chose what to do next. You know, this this is how humans exist, uh, and and people are so used to codifying these two frameworks or ownership of one commercial business or another. And actually, it's how we live, um, and that's yeah. what I like about agile because actually, at a, at a very base level. It changes my relationship to work in that I don't work for the work. The work delivers something of value. Uh, and I, I think that was that was because I'd actually been through Prince, Prince 1, and Prince 2 came along and I said, no, I don't want to do that. That exists to blame someone. And I don't want mm. to be involved in, I want to, 
you know, I, I had the kid-like view of the world. I want to build stuff. I'm interested in doing stuff that has value, that that makes the world better, that uh, makes an environment and the way we live more interesting. Um, and and then Agile comes along and says, yeah, we can do that, but let's not do it on a grand scale. Let's do it with a small team and then see what happens and see how it evolves. So I think well, it's going to say that. Prince one, no. I, I was working in project management before Prince. Okay. <laughs> Do we even dare ask the year? Prince one. I'm sorry. As soon as you said Prince one, I was like, right, that's it. No. Uh, well, no it's, way. It's, it's <laughs> it. the, the, the point was that it, before Prince, it was really bad. Everyone was making mm -hmm. up everything and, and trying to make it work. And there was no common language. So Prince did something useful and created a common parlance around uh, project work and uh, general trajectories through a piece of work and workflows and uh, operational practices that weren't there before. Um, and, you know, if you were an architect, it, it, you had some of those things. If you're an engineer, you had some of those things, but they weren't a common language uh, and you couldn't get things done together. You had to work in very tight silos. Um, so I think this is the thing, um, what we're starting to see uh, in uh, the world as it becomes agile is that um, we need less of agile and more of awareness and more of learning and the more of measurement and the more of trying. And I think that's that's what's really interesting about what you're saying. Well, I that's why we try to say, uh, you know, my boss, Andrew Burroughs is, he's brilliant. And one of the things that he says that I've really, it's resonated with me is um, when I was hired and he was talking about this with me is we have a very simple viewpoint. And it's this mindset over framework. Mm -hmm. And, and it is so simple, but it's so easy to default to a framework, um, usually around tooling. I mean, if you think about it, if you look at the tools that exist, every piece of software is built with a bias. It's built with the problem that someone couldn't solve with someone else's tool, so they went and built their own, right? So they there's always a bias in how it's made. And so even when you look at um, you know tools that take an approach like Kanban, the way they approach Kanban is through that same lens and bias. So what ends up happening is the framework is, is less what's followed than it is the way a manufacturer of a tool implements that framework and visualizes and accommodates the workflow of that framework. It's through that lens of that bias. And so then that gets, well, this is the way. No, it's a way, you know? Um, and that's where I think for us, you know, asking the questions is, are we delivering value? Are we building the teams we wanna build? Or do we feel happier? Are we satisfied? You know, Google did a thing, uh, I forget the name of the project, it'll come to me in a minute, but they had, they identified the top five Googler needs. The top five Googler needs in order were psychological safety, dependability, Structure and clarity, meaning and impact. Those things are true because human, period, full stop. Not because agile, right? Yeah. And, yeah. and yeah. so if you just look at the, the idea, people want to be fulfilled. They want to have meaning. They want to know what wins look like. They want to know that they can trust you and you can trust them. And they want to feel like it's not going to be a punitive um, command and control um, blame and control environment, but you, you instead something else. And, and that has to be something you go create with intentionality. Carl and Sabrina, I am probably, I say this too much possibly, but it's just, I believe it through and through. And it's this, I, I think that what we have to look at is when you, when you look at the, the whole thing, the overarching thing is, are we building the cultures we want? Because agile is more a culture play than anything else. If you change the culture, anything's possible to change. But if you cannot change or influence the culture, not much will stick. At least not much will stick that's healthy, scalable, and repeatable, right? So those are the things that I look at and say, how, how do you go do that? And I think the team where you're starting with, Carl, again, is the team is where you build the microculture. And then if I have a bunch of microcultures that start getting to ch chat and communicate, not just in their own bubble, but across, you know what you start finding is that you build a macro culture and yeah. that macro culture begins to influence and change the largest culture, the overall corporate ethos. That's our opportunity, but it requires the kind of culture where that's not even just allowed, but encouraged 
where it can thrive. So, so this is the um, one of those. I was talking to someone else earlier today about this book I'm reading, Pirates in the Navy. I'm sure you've seen it. Um, I have not. Oh, it's fascinating. So I'll just read the brief synopsis. It says, uh, faced with the, with the choice of starting a company or joining a large corporation, Steve Jobs believed that it was more fun to be a pirate than to join the Navy. <laughs> uh, but the fascinating thing is, but for innovators inside established companies, making distinction between being a pirate and joining the Navy is, is a fallacy. We have to figure out a way to become pirates in the Navy. And that's, you know, to, to be an innovator, to be someone who wants to do something different in a large organization, how do you do that without losing your job? Because the large organization has all of these policies and governance set in place to actually stop you from innovating and creating risk. And, and this is, this is the, the dichotomy. People want the benefits of team culture and mindset and evolutionary working practices but they don't want to let it happen. Mm. So it's, it's, it's so going back to originally to your original expression of how you got buy-in, you have to show people why it matters. What do they yeah, actually I get? I wouldn't say that they wouldn't let it happen. They don't quite understand, like you've just said, Anthony, the benefits, because they sometimes have to visually see it. And this is why I was so impressed with what you did, because you, you visually showed it to actually get their buy-in. Some people can, a lot of people actually, I, th I don't know if it's a human being aspect, can, can't understand things unless they visually see it. And then but you've got to work out how can you visualize these areas. There's, there's also institutionalization. You know, yeah. People get institutionalized to, to, to be safe, uh, and they yeah. don't then have to challenge the status quo. And if you, I mean, one of the statements in here is, is if you're an innovator in a large corporate, you're likely to lose your job in the first year because you'll just, you bring in stuff that really terrifies people and they, they want to get rid of you. And, and, and I've seen it. I've actually seen that happen to people. Um, maybe I'm, maybe I'm an outlier then I, at IBM, <laughs> which has a lot of governance, right? It's a huge organization with a lot of, and, and a lot of the business we're in require a lot of governance. So I, I've never thought about. Uh, I'm going to lose my job. Yes, that's never even crossed yeah, my but mind. IBM no. has a very unique culture. I mean, what I know about IBM is they have this notion of an IBM is that every person is potentially a new business. Sure, but it's still a large enterprise. And like every <laughs> large enterprise, you have the it's easier to follow the rules than and ask for forgive uh, permission than ask for forgiveness right that's safer um and i'm not saying it's everywhere but it's the, the reality is you you have to know that anytime you're dealing with um the largest of an institution institutionalization is a reality even with the best of companies so but i i just don't fear leadership um, I remember uh, there was a, a GM for digital sales in North America. I was asked, having been here a whopping like 60 days, um, the CMO's office called and said, we want you to go up and talk to the, them about what it looks like to be agile, evaluate ways they could be agile. I'm like, okay, how long do I have? A week. I said, well, I'll observe. Um, so it's kind of a funny story, but when I went up there, uh, I, I met with this GM. I was in 23 meetings in 23 or 26 in five days. And um, there was like, he went to a personal lunch that I didn't go to. Other than that, I was there and it was with his, him and his staff and, uh, you know, high level stuff, NDA on a bunch of things just by proximity. And, and it was, you're NDA on that now. Got it. Um, one of the things that happened at the end of it, end of it, as I said, okay, here's, here's the things that I've observed. Here's my questions for you. I asked a bunch of questions and it went well. And, and I said to Luca, I said, I said, question for you. Um, What's your takeaway? What's the, what's the biggest value of this and, and what can I learn you know, from it? And he said, you know what, Anthony? He said, uh, maybe it's my position, but a lot of people treat me differently because of my role, because uh, I'm a senior executive. He said, but you don't. You just treat me like Luca. I really like that. And uh, <laughs> I share that story to say, if I don't put them on a pedestal, they're not likely to fall from it. Right. So yeah. what I want to do is just say, I respect the position and the, uh, and the amount of authority and the, gosh, the responsibility that comes with leading thousands of people. Um, that's a challenge, but still a person, right? Still, still gets dressed in the morning like I do. Right. So 
I just don't fear. I was once interviewed for a, a job. I remember this, and uh, he asked how I dealt with um, with conflict of people above me, and I said, I, I feel like like anybody, like I just work through conflict. I mean, this is these are ways I work through conflict. I explained that. And he says, No, let me give you an example. You're told we're going to change this. You're at this level. The guy above you, one of the guys above you, you, go talk, and he chucks you on the arm and goes, Hey, Anthony, thanks for the suggestion. What's your response? And I said, well, I'd chuck him on the arm and say, you're welcome, Bobby. It's not a suggestion. <laughs> you know, and we, are, we are going this way because this is not my authority I'm working out of. My level yeah. of authority is not in proportion to my position. That I'm under you in the org chart is true but irrelevant. What is, I'm working out of the authority of the person at the top of the food chain saying, here's where we're going. Here's our direction. My job's to help us all get there. So how can I help you? Right? I've just, that's how I work. I don't fear it. And, and I think that it's helped me in many ways. I mean, there's been tough situations um, at any job, but you can't operate out of that. And if the culture is toxic, which I've worked in some toxic cultures, um, yeah, you can't touch those. And it's, it's the culture that you can't touch. It's not the person. Yeah. You have to make a decision. Do you want to stay in a toxic culture or not? And my choice is absolutely not. Yeah. I mean, I, I, my, as a consultant, I, I like the fact that I can get fired. Um, and, and people are very, they get very odd about that. They go, but what about your career? And I go, well, my career is, is based around helping people get to where they want to get to. If they don't want to get there, then, you That's know, I really should be working somewhere else anyway. Um, and uh, if I'm helped along the way, um, by um, the fact that uh, people feel insecure because I am secure, then that's also fine. You know, you, you, uh, I remember someone saying to me a long time ago, my happiness does not reside in someone else's mind. You know, mm -hmm. Someone else's opinion of me doesn't determine my happiness or my sense of security. And I think that's a, that's a good uh, way to understand the world because you'll never make everyone happy. No. <laughs> yeah, I've got a question for you. So at the very beginning, obviously, you, you started off with mentioning how your journey started. What was the hardest thing to change when you started with a team? You said you wanted to go agile. You mentioned you tried Scrum. Um, it didn't necessarily work. What was the hardest thing to actually change within your department, within your team, you know, with the people that you were working with, within marketing? I think, well, the type of marketing that I've been in has been largely B2B, not B2C. Um, so in the B2B space, I think content marketing automation is table stakes now, but it was the key. And I still think it's the key because I think what you have to do, the hardest part to answer your question is anything where you need critical thinking skills, you want a human involved, we have to make that and codify that to where that's exceptionally clear and people are empowered, not just with the responsibility, but I also delegate the authority, right? You don't operate out of your level of hierarchy, you operate out of your level of responsibility. And that's one, but what, what comes with that, Sabrina, is that when I think about it, the hard thing is saying to the way things have been, the inertia that exists, that's no longer good enough. What got you where you're going isn't going to get you where you want to be, right? So what got you to here isn't going to be what takes you. And people don't like, fundamentally don't like change, which is why when I show all the change models, I don't care if it's Kubler-Ross, if it's Satir change model, I don't care if it's Tuckman model. They all have this and then this. There's always the dip because human. Change sucks. And it really sucks in the short term for every single person. But there are those of us who've learned the value of that suck to embrace the suck because on the other side of it is opportunity, right? So there's, it's not that you get to skip this. And one of the things I point out in the Satir model is, you know, when she talks about, um, you know, anger, disappointment, if you get at the bottom of that and you sit in the depression of it, you can stay there. There's nothing that says you have to get out of that. Managers can't make you get past the dip. All a leader and managers can do is promise to walk with you and be with you through the dip and understand the expectation that it's not going to be an up and to the right. That's a naive expectation. There will be loss before there's gain, but 
the overall gain would be far greater than the, the plateau or the, the slight increase we're having now. We're looking for much more like this. We're just going to do it over a longer period of time, but you're going to lose before you win. And, and that's really hard because no one like, well, we can't stop. I'm like, okay, if we're going to build the airplane while we're falling to the ground, then at no point does anybody get to say to me, hey, what's our thrust ratio? I'm like, we don't have engines, so we're still <laughs> falling. But once I have the engines on and we can stop the dive, then I can tell you what that is. But that's going to take some time. And here's where we are. And I, I like using that model. I do this quite a bit in my PowerPoint where I, I, I do the you are here or the we are here. And we're usually farther left than they want us to be. Okay. But it's honest. And I, what I point out is where we are, what's coming, and where I think we're going to be, what has to change to get to this next step. And if you're just realistic in the expectations, then you can work with people to generally get to a place where they go, well, okay, well, then what could we do? Which is what I want to answer. I'm not very interested in what we can't do. I'm very interested in what we, we can and should do. So I want to focus us on that portion of the conversation and narrow that scope so that we get down to the, the MVP. What's the minimal but viable thing we can do? If it's not viable, I don't care how small it is, right? It's got to be viable. And for me, that hard part is that change of helping change mindsets is the hard thing. It has nothing to do with agile, it has to do with human. I love it the way that you detail it because you're right, actually, taking agile out of this, you know, at the end of the day, we all have our downtimes, we all have our moments where we hit rock bottom. But the way that we actually strive as human beings is when we do actually hit rock bottom, we learn why we've hit rock bottom and then we actually strive for it. That actually makes us more powerful that makes us more inspirational it actually helps us learn as human beings and it's the same within business it's the same within behaviors and the same within teams um i love that analogy the, the way that you've used that as well i could i could honestly listen to you all day the the way that you come out with things and how easy you describe it makes it just so simplistic i, I think also you're, you. you're giving people permission to have that slump yeah. By, by sharing it, because I think a lot of the time, uh, I don't know of any business, senior business leaders, and I'm talking about multinationals who go out to the staff and say, look, we know that you're not going to hit your targets this quarter uh, because you're going through some changes here. No, they'll always say, keep striving for it, keep going for it. And actually, by sharing the, a dip um, notion before an advancement, uh, you're, you're kind of giving people permission uh, and, but it not not, uh, not not a free pass, but definitely permission to acknowledge that they don't control everything they think that they do. Yep. When when COVID hit, we were six months into our agile transformation for digital sales in, in the North America group, 26 teams. And one of the things that happened was this is co-located teams where they were sitting around and there was a great camaraderie that each team had of being able to just lean over and chat or come together at the center table in the pods on the cubes. And it was, they, they all had that. Then you didn't. And one of the things that we had was by building the cadence of our communication, coordination and collaboration and the channels by which we did that, we made it to where it was seamless. And the GM for this division, Frank Luxick, had said at one point, I remember saying, if we had not been agile, I don't know what would have happened because we were, it was almost like it was a, it was not even a comma in a paragraph. It was a blink. It, it just didn't feel like much. Yeah, there was loss, but we, it just, we didn't feel it. We just kept going. Um, that is because of the intentionality of what we built. But again, you could be doing agile and not have that because people don't have the trust, they don't have the communication. So you have to really think about that connection, how much the other people on the team matter. It's not, did you get stuff done? It's did, did you get the right stuff done with the right time, with the right people in the right way? And those are really, it's hard to do. That's hard. It's like, that's kind of like double tough, but that's why we do it. If, we, if we're not interested in facing that opportunity for that kind of continuous improvement, that kind of radical change, uh, what are we doing? I have a three slide PowerPoint that I use pretty frequently and I don't have it in front of me, obviously, but it would be the first slide is a, it's a, it's a caterpillar. And then the second slide is a caterpillar with a couple of butterfly wings, like attached to it. And then the third one's an actual butterfly. And what I'm trying to say is we're not optimizing a caterpillar. 
we're transforming into a butterfly. My last slide shows that caterpillar and a butterfly having brunch at a table. And the caterpillar <laughs> says to the caterpillar says to the butterfly, you've changed. And the butterfly says, we're supposed to, right? That it, the, what's interesting about this, and I point this out, is that the DNA of that caterpillar is exactly the same as the DNA of the butterfly. It's the same organism, but the expression of that DNA is so radically different that you couldn't even look at the caterpillar and have an inkling that a butterfly was possible. And yet that is what's possible. And any organization can transform and hold on to their, the who they are, the what made them them, their DNA. But the expression has to be unrecognizable or it's probably not a transformation. <laughs> it's probably an optimization. Yeah. And I don't want to polish uh, the thing that's that's working minimally well or not well. I want to actually do the thing that's remarkable. And I think I think that's what we're all in this for. Um, I think we're, we are looking at several, always looking at past work and looking at the work we're involved with and wondering, you know, can we get it to that actual transformation uh, or will we be polishing uh, the existing sets of uh, um, bad behaviors uh, with new branded um, constructs um, can and we that, say that is it? a problem is it like can we say is it like polishing a turd if that's what you're starting with we all managed to yes. skirt around oh. that so well done <laughs> Sure, but but Sabrina, think about it this way: What if you have what you have isn't bad? It's working. Yeah. Here's my question: Yeah, you know, I've done so many times in businesses, you know, in consulting or whatever, or even just in business units inside enterprises like an IBM or Fidelity Investments, whatever. I would ask the question: You're successful in spite of. What would happen if you were successful because of? Yeah. And every everybody who's got a, a PNL or a, or a number to hit or a quota to attain or some level of success to achieve which everybody does for your business then I say okay what is the way that it could be radically greater and let me tell you what that's going to look like is not by being agile it's going to be because you decided to orient your business around your customer and not have your customers orbit your business and when you start doing that and they become the center of everything then the way you work with your employees, the way you create and motivate them, the way you create your systems and processes, all those things are reflections of what you value. So a lot of times we value what we're comfortable with because human. But when you start valuing what could be and you build the better thing, we shift away from what Milton Friedman in 1970s said, you know, a company exists for one reason and one reason only, and that's to generate a profit. Well, the internet changed all that. And software as a service in particular changed it, but some, anything can be as a service nowadays. And, and my principle of that is this, instead of profit being the thing, if you read Age of Agile um, by Steve Dinning, he talks about it's no longer the shareholder value, it's now the customer value. And if you shift from a shareholder to customer value mindset, you will more make more on the shareholder side eventually, yeah. but, you, but what you've done is you've changed your why. And, and I just see that as the key for being um, a modern business where your brand reputation, your stance on issues, who you are is way more than what you sell. Uh, so what people are looking for is that level of ownership, leadership, authenticity, and really an empathetic view of them. So give them a reason to believe and people will line up. But you've got to create that value proposition. And that starts with changing the way you orient your business away from shareholder value and towards customer value. And the, the, the best marketing on the planet is a happy customer. Um, Absolutely. The business they engaged with did what it said on the cover and it delivered and it continues to deliver and as such, you create that yeah. engagement. You know, the, the customer lifecycle management isn't something that the company manages. It's, this, it's something that the customer decides to engage with. And they do that based around getting what they expected to get and sometimes getting more. Um, start with, if you have any kind of recurring revenue business, start with the lifetime value of a customer, which is not, yeah. by the way, the cumulative month to month like Netflix. It wouldn't be the fact that they uh, subscribe for a year. It's what happens when they don't ever unsubscribe. Yeah. It's what happens when, when the price goes up, they go with you because the value is greater than the price they're paying. 
right? Yeah. So, and as a B2C model and B2B even more so, because here what you've got is the opportunity to say, oh, and we scaled this and tied our business. We, we bought your tool software product service, it worked really well here so well, we're gonna now put it like, you can't get higher lifetime value um, if you try it. Like that's the, that's the, if that's the thing you work towards, then all your other KPIs align to that one and go from our marketing, um, you know, our, our, our um, MQL, marketing qualified leads. My MQL, there is a ratio I can eventually calculate to say MQL to lifetime value. This is what it takes. I could actually understand that mathematically, but what I'm trying to get at is less that notion and more the holistic nature of I am ruthlessly focusing on only the client. And it's why, just as a quick aside, you know, one of the things I did with our visualization of work, kind of full circle, Sabrina, you're talking about visualizing. We used um, some software for this, but when the teams were remote, I said, hey, one of the things I want to see is of the work you're doing, I want you to rate it. And at the end, once it moves to the done column, tell me, was it high value, good value, or low value? How you subjectively feel about it. Tell me your emotional sentiment of that. And then they would put their high value, good value, low value. I said, oh, but one qualification. If it's not client-centric work, if it doesn't directly impact the client, it cannot ever have the label high value. It can be good value, but it can't be high value because high value is reserved for client-centric work that adds value to the client. So I did this and what was fascinating was we had a ton of good and low value work. We started very little high level value work, which led to the conversations, right? I can ask better questions now. So why do we prioritize? Well, we have to. Why do you have to? What are we trying to achieve? And you just keep peeling those onion back and what ends up happening is you start having better discussion, better questions, better dialogue, and you start orienting towards higher value work and eliminating lower value work. Because now it's not a complaint. Now it's a data point with a story and an aggregate set of how much this is costing in human capital. <laughs> and now it becomes, maybe we shouldn't do that thing we've been requiring, but you can't know that until you start to measure. If you visualize it, you can talk about it. If the truth is ugly, at least it's a truth and you can do something yeah. with it. But you have to start with that piece and everything flows from that. That's creating that culture of understanding and shared responsibility and accountability regardless of your role. Right. Unfortunately, it's been an absolute pleasure having you here again, Anthony, and hopefully we get to get you back again. Um, no, no I think fortunately back. it's been an absolute pleasure. <laughs> you I think she was going to say, unfortunately, we're out of time. I think she was going with that. I think so. I think so. I just, uh, not that I'll remind you of this ever again. Uh, yeah, thank you, Anthony. It's been fabulous. And uh, I'm sure Sabrina will work on her uh, on a pitch later. Yeah, I will. I will. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Thank you again, everybody. Cheers. Cheers. Bye. Bye.